You are listening to Word Up, a place where we share our stories because who we are matters. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Word Up. Today, we are diving into truth when it comes to anti-racist education and what that means. If you haven't heard of Kalinda Klein and the work she does to raise awareness of Indigenous education and to challenge systemic barriers for all racialized students, then I hope that by the end of this episode, you take time to learn more about her work and consider joining one of her virtual book clubs or learning circles. In this episode, I am also joined by our distance learning NBE teacher, Patrick Schmidt, and student Caitlin Julian, who will be attending Nipissing University in the fall to start her own journey towards becoming an Indigenous Studies teacher. All right, so I'll go first. Uh, so my name is Patrick Schmidt. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I live in Timmins, Ontario, for, and I teach for District School more Ontario Northeast. Um, so I teach in a few places. I teach in uh, Ecole Secondary Cochrane High School in Cochrane, Ontario, as well as Timmins High. And I'm currently a distance teacher, <laughs> which is uh, a new role for 2021. Um, so I mostly teach English, uh, including the course Understanding Contemporary First Nations uh, Métis and Inuit Voices, as well as history and foods. Um, so anyway, I'm excited to be here today. Um, I'm mostly like interested in seeing ways that I can you know, potentially evolve my teaching and become a better teacher. So my name is Caitlin Julian. I am in grade 12. I'm from Attachment First Nation and I'm 19 years old. So we are extremely excited to have with us Kalinda Klein. Uh, Kalinda is Anishinaabe Kwe, proud mother of Max. Kalinda is the curriculum lead for First Nation Métis and Inuit education at the Upper Grand District School Board. She's been a teacher for 20 some years. I don't know if you want us to date you on that. <laughs> um, and she's held various roles, including head of special education, teaching English history and First Nation Métis and Inuit studies. Kalinda has been leading and facilitating professional development for over 15 years. She's also the host of the Anti-Racist Educator Reads podcast. On a personal note, Kalinda is a huge inspiration to me as an educator. She's able to lead difficult conversations with grace and strength and regularly reminds us of our shared responsibility in this work. She works hard to create authentic relationships and knowledge to help her support her school and to keep her grounded in the work she does. So welcome, Kalinda. Thank you so much for those words. I don't mind dating myself. It's uh, 28 years that I've been doing this work. Kwe, Nibi, Bwajik, and Kwe, Indijnikaz, Makwa, and Dodam, Kitiganzibi, Nishnabe, Dunjaba, Nishnabe, Kwe, and Dao. I'm really honored that you asked me to speak with you today. And I'm very happy that uh, we have a student as a co host today. Yeah, and we really try to make sure that student voice is is at the forefront of all of the work that we do. So on this podcast, I always like to let our students speak first. I know that I have a tendency to overtake conversations, so I want to make sure that that Caitlin can get her first few questions in. I take it that's you telling me to go, go for, for it. it. Go for it now, <laughs> Caitlin. Yeah. All right. Um, so because I am going into teaching more quicker than I thought it was, like I'm literally going off to university in like four months. That's crazy to me. Um, but one of my biggest questions was what are some of the biggest barriers that you see today in the Indigenous education? 
I've been doing this role that I, I'm doing right now, which is leading Indigenous education in a school board for seven years. And what I'd say consistently, the biggest barrier is a lack of knowledge. And and so when I'm when I'm talking to different peoples, whether it's administrators or it's students, that people just don't know. And and I know people don't know what they don't know. And as well, at some point, there's a responsibility that folks have to do their own learning. And so we can't always be relying on someone within a school district to be providing that education for folks, that they have to pick up something on their own. And and especially today, there's so many options with, uh, since we've gone into COVID, this is, I would say, a good thing that's happened from COVID is the way that we're connecting right now. Um, the way that I thought I started my own podcast during COVID, the number of webinars that are available for folks to engage in um, from all over the world in a way that just never happened before. So I think that that's the the biggest barrier is, is a lack of knowledge. And if for someone who I'd see like yourself going into university, that uh, you will see that front and center. Um, when you're when you are in school, I think it has changed uh, quite a bit since I was in school. Which obviously, if I've been teaching for 28 years, that's some time ago. And I have a a master's in history and master's in Canadian history uh, with zero Indigenous history courses. So I like folks to think about that. How is it possible that someone has an undergrad degree? in Canadian and American history, and then a graduate degree that's in Canadian history and have no Indigenous history courses. So when I think of even myself as a Anishinaabe, how my own view of the history of this country is so colonized because that's what I was fed. And so we have even, even our own people uh, don't know because we've been all uh, fed that same Kool-Aid about what the the narrative is of what it means to be in this this country. So I think that that's the biggest barrier. And and what I I would like to invite people to to think about how how can you change that as an individual that the actions that you can take straight away to change that. And it can be as simple as picking up a book. And I mean I think that it also kind of comes in with the identity part, like you were kind of saying. Um, when you're in high school, you're, you're really trying to figure out your identity piece. Um, and being Indigenous, it's, it's a big part of not being Indigenous. I don't want to say that, but when you're Indigenous, it's a big part of, do I identify? Do I not even do I, I don't know how to explain this, <laughs> but when it's a struggle, um, for me, it was hard to be like, yeah, I'm, I proudly identify as Indigenous because sometimes that was like, a shabby thing to do. It was like, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. Right. Like it wasn't something you should be proud of. And in like grade nine and grade 10, I was like, why can't I be proud to be indigenous? I didn't get it. Um, and like, even still to this day, like my, my uncles and my great uncles, they're like, I, I don't like being indigenous and they they just go about their life. So they go to work and they, they moved off the res. They don't like the reserve and it's stuff like that. Um, so I look at people in my family and I'm like, well, they're not proud to be Anishinaabe. So how can I be, but I've also gotten to a point in my life where I know that I want to make change. And if I want to make change, I have to be a proud of who I am. Right. 
I think it's around that trauma narrative. That's why people don't want Mm -hmm. to identify because when people do talk about Indigenous folks in schools, what do they talk about? You know, residential schools and 60s scoop and Indian Act and the you move on to on to reserves and then the those uh, the social determinants of health and how Indigenous folks are are you know, exponentially represented in um, alcohol abuse and drug abuse Mm -hmm. and and domestic abuse and incarceration and all of those things. Those are the, those trauma narratives that are the things that we hear of the most when educators are diving into, to do that, that work. And, and what I, what I like to think about is how do we invite folks to balance that, not by going into culture, because I think that's what folks tend to do is then they're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to teach all about those terrible things and then smudge. So we're going to be good uh, because it's much bigger than that. It's, mm-hmm. it's how are you teaching about um, indigenous role models and survivance? Like how, how are we talking about the amazing things that are happening in our communities, particularly in the last five years? So are we balancing those, those trauma narratives with, with stories uh, of, um, of brilliance and survivance and resilience? We want to make sure that we are um, removing barriers and and elevating Indigenous leadership within our board. But I've also noticed that we we tend to then place pressure on Indigenous educators to to educate everybody else. And, And clearly there's pressure being placed on students as well. So how do we avoid that kind of tokenism and and make sure that space is open for Indigenous leaders to want to come in and educators to want to come in without saying, well, you're Indigenous, so you need to teach the Indigenous Studies course. Uh, Because Caitlin wants to be a teacher and we've had conversations about the fact she thinks she might want to teach math one day, but there's lots of conversations saying, well, you're Indigenous, so you should think about teaching Indigenous Studies. And, And I worry about that. I worry about the pressure that we're placing particularly on our youth, but also on my colleagues uh, for them to, to have this pressure that they have to be leaders. How do, how do we balance that in education? That's the million dollar question, Erin. <laughs> um, it's really difficult. I, I think of, of myself and when, when I think of what I carry as a Nishnabe Kwe in, in my role, it's it's really big and and I sometimes feel like I can't tell other indigenous folks what it's like because they're never going to step into the role and so um, again that's a reality when I'm thinking because I am near the end of my career and I have you know a couple years left before I can choose to retire and so succession planning is really important especially in Indigenous education, because it's all about relationships. And so with it being all about relationships, I can't just pass you a list if you take over my job and say, okay, here's all the people in the community that I've spent the last seven years developing relationships with. Now they're all going to be your BFF and um, you're good to go. Um, Good luck. You know, it's not going to work like that. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, but it's true. Yeah. (laughs) So you have to build those relationships. And so I've been um, thinking for me, um, 
how do I do these really hard things to make it easier for someone else to want to take over the role? Because if I were younger me, I have to say I would think about whether or not this would be a role that I would take and think really heavily about that because there is there is a toll because I don't go home and stop being Nishinaabe. Mm. So uh, because it never stops and... Um, and, and I think that that's a challenge. And if I give an example for, we just recently started an Indigenous uh, student uh, leadership uh, group within the school district where we're, we're meeting remotely and having these conversations about uh, with an elder, what are things that they'd like to learn about? Uh, what sorts of supports do they need? And I was hoping that they, one of them would sit on our advisory. None of them are interested. You know, none of them want to do it. And even the one time I said, you can all come and you can scope us out. <laughs> and, then, and if you don't like it, then you can, you know, politely decline. And none of them came. And my initial response was disappointment because I was thinking, how do we represent student voice when they're not at the table? And then at the other side, I was thinking, I don't blame them. You know, it, because it's it's so hard and it's really challenging conversations that we're having all the time about colonialism and racism and what this looks like in our schools. And so if you are experiencing that in your everyday life by things that just you have to do, then why would you choose to add on to that something, something else. So what I think is, is that we have to have mechanisms in place where folks can support each other. So where are there places for Indigenous staff and Indigenous students to speak really frankly about their experiences? And for someone who's within that space to be uh, the messenger or the the one elder that I work the most with, uh, she says to me that part of my job is translator. So, you know, because I'm ceremonial, I go, I go spend lots of time with elders and be in ceremony. And so I understand a little bit about that world. And then I'm also very adept at the colonial world. And so my job is going back and forth between the two and trying to make sure that they understand each other. Because anyone who works in education knows that we fall into edu-speak so easily. And other people outside go, what did they say? They have no idea. <laughs> yeah, every acronym. Yeah, I know. That's what one person said. Could you please not use any acronyms when we're meeting? And I didn't even realize because I was doing it too. And so so I think that that's part of it. And, and then I, I, I think that we have to uh, make sure that there are teams. So like in, in my district, so we're, um, I mean, I'm in Guelph. And so our school board, I think we have around 36,000 students. We have 76 schools. There's around 400 uh, self-identified Indigenous youth, uh, which is about like one point something percent of the population. But when we had anonymous surveys, there's 6% of the students. I wow. ID. So there's a big difference. So that tells us something. Why are 5% of, even with error, 4% then let's say of of families and students in our district not feel safe. So, and there's one of me, there's one person. Yeah. And so where do I go 
um, for support. You know, I don't have that. And, and so I found it myself um, through mostly through Twitter and social media and, um, and other uh, Indigenous uh, leads as well. So, you know, I've connected with a number of Nishnabe and Anguihanwi folks uh, who do my role. And so, you know, we have, um, it's an affinity group. So if you know what affinity group, you might not uh, know Caitlin. And so people who just are the same background, because I think it's easier that if I'm speaking with just other Nishnabe, I don't have to explain something. And then I don't have to worry about hurting someone's feelings who's white. So, mm. so I would be experiencing racism. I'm experiencing this. And then if someone who's white, who's even really, um, supportive and kind by me just speaking frankly about the experiences of racism and colonialism I could you know hurt your feelings and I don't want to do that so it's uh, safer for me if it's an affinity group because then I, I don't have to filter myself I mm-hmm. can just speak frankly and say this is what I'm feeling and um, and I think that if we are creating teams of people to do the work and affinity groups for staff and for students um, because I, I I don't know I can't speak for you Caitlin but I you know I think in mixed company we speak differently than when we are just with um, other folks who are um, Nishnabe. I agree. <laughs> um, no, I've never heard about affinity group, but I think that's like an amazing idea. Well, and I, I think what Kalinda was saying is is spot on too, right? It's just it's having so that having that safe space too, where you don't mm-hmm. have to to necessarily give background to everything. That you can just be be who you are without worrying about, um, yeah, without worrying about that offense and and upsetting people, which I find really interesting in education. Um, it's hard, like when we start to talk about anti-racism and we start to have some of those harder conversations, which we're, we're starting to do in our board uh, now. And, and we've had some professional development that's really been geared towards anti-racism education. But, I, you know, for me to walk into a room and talk with other educators and talk about something like um, white privilege, it, it's different coming from me than it is from our Indigenous lead in terms of the way it's received by our staff. Mm-hmm. And, and that has been surprising for me to, to realize I didn't. And, and I think that's where I've started to carve out my own um, role in this, in this education right now is understanding that, like you said, translator, I like that word that I feel sometimes like I'm in between worlds and trying to make sure Mm -hmm. that, that those relationships are, are still open to each other. Um, But I think it's great. I love that idea of affinity. And I hope, Caitlin, that's something that you find um, as you go off to post-secondary, that you find that support group. Um, Patrick, do you have a question? We've left you out. Yeah, no, that's okay. Women dominated. (laughs) (laughs) I I felt it was wrong to to butt in just to ask a question. So the conversation was going really good. so. (laughs) Um, So I guess one thing that I've been wondering about, and I guess looking for the most is advice. So I guess I could tell you a bit about like where I'm coming from. So I, I also have a background in history. I have an MA in history as well. Um, Latin American history. <laughs> Although I oddly probably got more um, Indigenous education in my undergrad and grad school studying Latin American history than, <laughs> than you may have, uh, you know, a couple decades ago um, studying Canadian history. Um, so I feel pretty confident, you know, teaching um, courses like NBE, 3U and 3C and um, I've had some other experiences that kind of helped give me confidence. Like I took a course in university 
when I was in teacher's college called uh, Indigenizing uh, Practices and Perspectives in Education, which I felt, which I thought like gave me really a really good confidence to talk about um, issues and um, understand issues and kind of know my place. Um, so I feel like I'm confident. I feel like I do like a lot of things well in the classroom, but I'm just kind of looking for advice for like, how do I better support say my, you know, indigenous colleagues like ISAs um, or indigenous students. Um, and also maybe like some of my colleagues that um, feel less confident uh, stepping outside their comfort zone. Like what advice could you give, you know, me and my colleagues that are less comfortable um, and how to improve net, the educational experience for say ISAs and for, for indigenous students. Can you tell me what ISA is? Indigenous Student Advisor. <laughs> so sorry, it's a maybe it's easy to our school board. <laughs> acronyms, yes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I would be curious as uh, like how other folks are included in the planning of, of what you're working on in the classroom. Cause I think that that would be a really an integral part because you're, you're the educator, you're the trained educator. So you have the pedagogy, right? Like that's your area of expertise is, is the pedagogy and indigenous folks area of expertise is lived experience as indigenous peoples. Right. And so I wonder in what ways might folks create spaces where there's conversations to say, you know, these are the things that we would like to be seeing happening in these, in these classes. And then as the educator to look at how you might be able to uh, facilitate that. And if I give an example, it might be looking at the texts and I don't know what, you know, I don't know what your texts are. And, and I know that many of the, the texts are very trauma focused. And so, uh, so I'd be looking at that as uh, when we're looking at, at um, the texts, because we're, you know, all of the boards in the province are looking at culturally responsive and relevant pedagogy. And, and how are we uh, implementing uh, not just uh, diverse authors, because that's part of the, uh, culturally responsive pedagogy, but also the understandings that you need to have in order to really do justice to that. And, and um, so you can't just uh, teach about, uh, let's say, Richard Wagamese uh, without understanding colonialism, without understanding residential schools, without understanding the foster care system. You can't do that and do it justice. I think some folks do, uh, but you, I don't think you can do it without doing it, it justice. And what I, what I worry about and what I often see happening is that all of the texts that are chosen are, are trauma-based. And, and that, again, we don't have that balance of texts that also look at... Um, yeah, in, Indigenous um, excellence. And um, and, I, and I think that's because those are the ones that are most known, you know, like I would say that certainly that's what I was looking at mostly. And it's only been probably in the last maybe three years that I've been consciously looking, where am I pulling in those, those other stories? And then when you're talking about working with staff, Indigenous staff ad, uh, or student advisors, that I think of, if I'm choosing a book that talks about residential school and either Indigenous students in my class, how many of them is this an intergenerational reality for them? 
And so that's, and, and therefore, is that the most appropriate text for me to use? It might be, uh, and it might not be. And so I think like, in what ways are, are we creating options that we are not, um, re-traumatizing or continuing that oppression or, or, or trauma on Indigenous students and their families by choosing texts that are um, all trauma-focused. So, so that's the one, one thing that, that I think of. And then I guess I wonder too, you know, are there, does the Indigenous student advisor also have anything that they can bring to the table to, to share? you know, in what ways are Indigenous voices, because it's a literature, you're talking about, the, I think they mentioned the literature class. So that's, you're reading the books and short stories and plays. And and in what ways are there live human beings, also Indigenous voices that are there? And sometimes I would, I would hope that the Indigenous student advisors, perhaps themselves, obviously, it's going to depend on, on their comfort. Um, it might be students may not speak themselves, but they might have a family member who would be interested in. And so I guess that would be the, um, the invitation and an invitation that's not um, just a blanket invitation at the beginning of a class, but actually, you know, like if it were Caitlin, you'd be sitting down with Caitlin and saying, so th these are the things that we're talking about. And I don't know if there's anything in here that that perhaps is going to be a trigger for you um, and that, the, that we need to, to look at providing you with a different option. And I also don't know if there's any of these big, broad themes and topics we're going to talk about. Maybe there's someone that you know that would be interested in speaking um, to our class or they, you know, or they know someone, they, maybe not them directly, but they know someone. So I think that that would be a really welcome invitation to the Indigenous student advisors and to Indigenous students without putting them on the spot, like, you know, Caitlin had mentioned, not going, um, oh, Caitlin, you're in my class, so now you're going to talk to us about X, <laughs> you know, not that. But sometimes there are folks, though, who are really comfortable and they're so proud of something that they do. And so there might be a student who wants to, but it's always that private conversation that gives them the option to opt in or opt out or find someone else. That would that would be my suggestion. Okay, no, that's really helpful. And like, it's some things that I've thought about too, but maybe not necessarily had the confidence to ask or try. Um, so so that's, again, thanks, thanks for that. Um, and... It's like another like question that I had. It's kind of like relates to resources, and um, I found some good resources in the past. Like there, and especially like in the, on the literature front, I feel like over the last few years there's been like a big influx, and Aaron's probably to credit <laughs> an influx of literature into our school from Indigenous authors. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, if you feel like the the resources that are available out there has caught up to the curriculum and some of the intentions of the curriculum in Ontario right now. Or do you think that there's still I think it like depends. I think it depends what what um, course. If we're talking about English, so literature, yes. If we're talking about resources to support other subjects, absolutely not. That's one that I wanted to ask about. So I'd recently, like a couple of years ago, say I taught middle school. I taught grade seven and eight math, and I noticed there was like in the curriculum that there is some good connections to uh, like in indigenous teachings in the curriculum. But I had a really hard time finding resources that help support those. 
Um, so is, is that a, like a subject that you think of that? Can well, really... I think of that because I'm part of Indigenous Knowledge and Math Network that we okay. do this work through um, with Dr. Ruth Beattie out of Lakehead University. And so we've been doing Indigenous Knowledge and Math work uh, for a couple of years now. She's been doing it for 10 and I've been um, joined in I, three or four years. I can't remember now. It feels like much longer. And and, and there there really is is such little amount of, of appropriate resources. There are lots of resources and so many of them are problematic. And right now what we're in the process of doing in our school district is um, library deselection. So oh. Like, which, you know, some people are calling a censorship. And those are the people who don't understand that books have errors in them and books cause harm. And mm. so when someone who has a lived experience tells you that this particular book causes harm to Indigenous people, then you need to remove the book. And so uh, then when we, what we're looking at is uh, replacements, and there aren't a lot of replacements. So like if I'm speaking broadly around curriculum, the, the folks I feel the the, the most for is like grade four, which is uh, ancient civilizations. And and now all of teachers are expected to include a First Nation and, Minui, and, and Inui civilization. And there's nothing. And the things that do exist are so problematic and rife with inaccurate information. And so teachers are really in a bind. And so other than, and even literature, like, so we have to be super careful when we're choosing Indigenous literature, because just because someone is, um, is Indigenous, are they speaking appropriately from their own knowledge base? And that's what I've most recently been getting some pushback on, is that I've removed some uh, Indigenous authors' books. And it's because they are speaking outside of their lane. So it would mm. be like, I told you that I'm Nishnabe, and so if I start offering Anquihanwi teachings... I am out of my lane. And so that is not appropriate. And so there are quite a few uh, Indigenous authors that are writing about things that are not theirs to tell. And um, and so I think that that's where we're really starting to see, you know, what what what's okay and, and, and what's not. And then folks who find out and, and, and speak that truth are, um, like myself, then I'm being like uh, taken to task for speaking the truth because, well, I love this book. A non-Indigenous person says, I love this book. And I'm going to tell you why I'm going to keep teaching this book. And um, because, you know, they searched on Google and found the accurate information that the elders that speak to me are, you know, out of line with because it doesn't match what's on Google. And so I think that we have to be really careful in vetting our resources. I do think there's a lot of literature, um, other courses, hardly anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and even amongst the literature, like we really have to exercise caution to make sure that the person is speaking appropriately. Well, and that also comes into understanding the role of story, right? And why is the story being told and who's the story being told to? And I think that's something um, that we need to continue to to look at as educators. What is the role of story culturally? Uh, and then how are we using it in, the, in those literature courses? Uh, and it's interesting too, because other provinces have done a much better job. So I know British Columbia, Manitoba, they've done a much better job at embedding 
Indigenous content across many different uh, subject areas, and we still have really siloed it into specific and Indigenous history, Indigenous literature. Um, and so that's something that I know for me personally that I hope to see more um, change. Uh, and one of my questions, you were speaking about uh, Dr. Ruth Beattie, and uh, we've been lucky enough to, to work with her a bit over the last couple of years. But one of my questions for you is that I find um, our system stays unchanged. It's so rigid, right? The system of education. And, and when you start to push back and you start to push for change, there is resistance. And how do you, how do you um, handle those conversations when you're feeling that resistance to, to change? Not always as well as I should. <laughs> um, it's a real challenge. And, and I guess what I try to think about is that the a colonial system of education that we work in is doing what it's meant to do, not change. So the system is designed to not change. And so it's just doing exactly that. And then those of us who are looking for change are sometimes feeling, I know I don't want to speak for others, for myself, I feel like I am banging my head against a concrete wall uh, sometimes. Uh, and then there will be the, that moment where somebody sends me a note or somebody sends me an email or gives me a call and says, thank you so much for speaking out here or doing whatever. Um, yeah, it's, um, I, I think about the next generation and, and that I don't want them to have to deal with what I dealt with. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm mixed. I'm, my mom is not Anishinaabe. And so when someone looks at me, they might not know what my background is. And I experienced racism in elementary school when I was proud and spoke about who I was. And then I went underground because I could. And so that's a privilege that I had, um, that I know not everyone has that privilege. And um, I don't want my grandchildren to have to experience that. I don't want my grandchildren to just hear stories of trauma. Um, I want them to, to stand proud. And so I keep, keep at it. And I feel like it's like part of my name is water, right? And it's like I'm wa the water on the stone that it, it does affect change. And it's about finding, um, actually almost like creating co-conspirators, which if you read anything by Dr. Bettina Love, if you've seen that video where she talks about the poll, and I don't know if you, you know, want to yeah. link that up to your, to your folks who are listening, because an ally, someone can be a self-declared as an ally and tell you, I stand with you, but then they don't do anything. Um, but, but a co-conspirator is someone who, who stands up. And I can tell you last week I was in a meeting where someone, um, Who's a, who's a white colleague, had told me the week before how disappointed they were that they hadn't spoken up when I had spoken up at a meeting. Mm. And then the next week, that person was bam, 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 bam. Like uh, that person was the one calling it all out. And then I went, ah. So I could see this is this is someone else who's going to stand up and stand and stand with and help affect that change. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the elder who I mentioned, I work with her name is uh, Nancy Rowe, and she's uh, Mississauga. And um, the one thing that she says that I love is that we're creating the army. 
And so it's like we're creating this army of folks who are standing alongside us because there's not enough of us as as Indigenous folks. And so we need folks to stand alongside because it's not just the education system we're in right now isn't just bad for our kids. It's it's bad for other people's kids too. And so it's, it's going to be better for everyone if we affect change. And so that's what I hold on to. Some days I don't hold on to it as well as others. I mean, a part of it for me was, um, I started the podcast, right? Because when I uh, anti-racist educator reads started like right now, April of last year. And, um, it was partly in response to um, COVID, but we'd already had the idea before COVID. So it just, it was the timing ended up being perfect where I wanted to talk about books because I'm a voracious reader and I love having conversations with people about uh, books that we can apply to our jobs. And um, when I, in, in doing so, then I realized that, well, I, what about if we just have this conversation and share it with others? And so it's not just a conversation then between, you know, Kalinda and Aaron and Patrick and Caitlin. It's like anybody who wants to can tune in. So that's when I started that. And also the other part that I like is that that's not part of my job. So I can say what I really think um, <laughs> because, you know, and it's like, I do say what I think within but within parameters because I'm an employee. And so when I'm doing the podcast, though, I am not an employee. I I am just Kalinda, and I am just saying what I see. And so I'm able to to really speak truth to power there in a way that I cannot do the same way within my work. And so I created a space, created a space where I do that. And it's it's been a labor of love. Um, You know, it's... I, I really thought 10 of my friends would listen. And two weeks ago, I got, because Stephen Hurley hosts through Voicehead Radio, because I have zero tech skills when it comes to that. And um, we had hit uh, at, at 20,000 downloads. Ah, that's amazing. He said it's like, he goes, he doesn't know any other, like, unless someone's like really famous, like, like you know, like, like a famous person, not just average teacher um, uh, that has a, a podcast with that kind of hit. Yeah. I was in a, a Nishnabiaski curricular sharing last week and we were talking about it. And lots of the teachers were talking about how important it is to listen uh, to that podcast. So I think what you're doing is amazing. Um and part of that, too, is that that I decide not just to listen, right? Because at the end of every podcast, I always say, so what, now what? Because mm-hmm. we don't want people to think that just reading a book or just listening to a podcast or a webinar, that now you're good. Um, so now, how are you going to action what mm-hmm. it is that you learned? Because that's really the important part. Yeah. When you know better, you do better, right? Um Caitlin, Caitlin's smiling because I painted that on my wall when I was her teacher years ago. Um, Can you, Caitlin, maybe ask at least one more question? I've taken over as I always do, but you're used to that. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm taking over now. (laughs) Um, I meant by like your job, you know that, right? Uh, I, so, so Kalinda, I, she's saying this, honestly, I, I'm very open with my students. I say all the time, I'm a placeholder and one of you needs to come take my job. So Caitlin is going into education. She needs to come take my job. So she knows it's my call to action for her. But Caitlin, a question that you have. I I love this question. Who inspires you? 
Boy, lots of different people inspire me. I, I would think um, my son does. Like he's, you know, he's uh, 20 years old right now. And and I think of what do I do for him? And, and I love that we had a conversation. This was just last night because I, I did um, get very upset about something and was a little more public than I usually am with things that I'm upset about. And, um, and he's like the Zen master of like a bringing me down. And, and I just think that makes me laugh because most of the time it's the other way around for people. Usually the parents, the one calming the, the, you know, young person um, down, but it's the other way for me. And then I think of people like, Dr. Marie Batiste, who really um, set the groundwork for all of us with uh, decolonizing education. And, and I think of, you know, how difficult it is for me. And, and I honestly can't imagine how hard it was for her. Like, I cannot imagine. And, um, and so I'm thinking, if I can, you know, make a little tiny uh, step forward, um, because it has been as hard as it is for me, exponentially easier than for her. And, and I also think about the time that I've spent with different residential school survivors who have gifted me with their stories. And the same thing, like when I feel tired and it's like, and I feel like I just can't do this job anymore, <clears throat> I, th- I think of them. And I think of what did, what did they endure? And then what did they gift me with, with sharing their stories? And I'm like, suck it up, buttercup, and um, get right back, you know, and get, get back up there. So I would say those are the big ones. And then there's like some folks, um, I think, who, uh, who really honor, honor the work, like uh, uh, Debbie Donsky, who's a good friend of mine, who does all of these sketch notes for, for um, the podcast, and um, Melissa Wilson, who is on uh, Twitter as Drawn to Intellect, who drops bombs nonstop, who just calls out everything <laughs> as, as it is, and, um, and then also you know, my Anishinaabe sister, Pam Agawa, who, you know, it can, we've done so many things together and boy, I really miss her uh, right now. So, so lots and lots of people um, who, who inspire me. You uh, just saying all those names, I think back to Quest and what a profound moment that was for me, those, some of those conversations that were, were being had so publicly. And it was the first time in education that I felt like, I was in a room of so many like-minded people, but also hearing such truth. Um, and it wasn't being sugar-coated. It was, it was such a powerful moment. And to sit there with our director and superintendents and, and for it to have opened up conversations even in our school board that we hadn't been having yet. Um, so it was, yeah, it was pretty powerful. I'm going to be upset if I don't ask you this question. I know we're running out of time, but um, and Patrick and I were actually talking quite a bit about this earlier. Um, we're moving towards de-streaming uh, grade nine math. And um, we're hearing a lot of information about how this is being based in equity um, and, and how this is provincially something that the government is looking to do for, for more than just math. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. How, how do you see uh, streaming in high school? How do you see that um, in terms of equity uh, and racism? I, I think of um, something that 
uh, Tisha Nelson said in the very first one of the anti-racist educator reads when we were talking about uh, Desmond Cole's The Skin We're In, and uh, we talked about, you know, in what ways do we, when, when do we lift up uh, racialized kids into uh, seeing themselves and their potential in the future. And, and it's like, it's kindergarten. So, you know, we're talking about these streaming grade nine right now. And we know that streaming happens uh, way before uh, grade nine. And, and in what ways are we limiting people's uh, potential um, based on uh, a judgment that a couple of teachers have made uh, about someone? And in what ways are, are those, have those judgments been um, been made because of what they think they know and understand about uh, people who are uh, Black or, or Indigenous. Um, th that's really mostly the folks we're talking about are Black and Indigenous students. And I have heard story after story uh, from different uh, Black and, and Indigenous youth about uh, being uh, encouraged uh, to go into um, a stream that wasn't perhaps what what they wanted. And so I think that this is really important work. It's the meeting that I have right after this uh, about the work we're doing in our district. What, what I worry about is that there's not enough um, preparation going into the de-streaming for an um, professional learning for educators uh, and that there's a lot of resistance from from educators around this uh, and that we're, it's being set up to fail in the way that it did before because this isn't the first kick at the can around de-streaming. And so uh, that that's my greatest worry. And it's not about the fact that the, the new math curriculum isn't out yet because I don't think that's the issue. I think that, that teachers um, know how to teach uh, curriculum they know how to, they know the pedagogy. What they don't necessarily um, know are um, the impacts of racism and colonialism. They don't necessarily know uh, what microaggressions look like. Um, they don't necessarily know or see their own biases. And so that's the work we need to do mm -hmm. um, with, with teachers and not just grade nine teachers. And so this needs to be the conversations that we're having, I would say, starting middle school uh, and that the, that education's happening uh, with folks. And again, it's back to, I feel like the common theme is moving away from focusing on our trauma as, as Indigenous folks to looking at, at, you know, what are our gifts? You know, I think of, of Marie Batiste talks about that so much in Decolonizing Education. And it comes up too in the, in the other book we did, Braiding Sweetgrass, about gifts, right? Mm -hmm. What are your gifts? And so, you know, my, my gift is, is not public relations. So I know that. And I mean, I make a joke about it because I just say what I'm thinking and that's not what people need. Like they need to have someone who has that, you know, glossy filter that goes on on top you know the really nice snapchat filter needs to be for er for everything i say that comes out because i just uh, speak it as i as i see it so that's not my gift so that's not my role to play but if we're talking about someone who's going to advocate for staff and advocate for students and someone who's going to dig in until you know, the policies get changed and practices get changed. That's what I'm going to do um, because that's my gift. And so what are we looking at K 
kids' gifts in schools? How are we lifting them up in their gifts, which will help the things, the areas that we need to remediate, um, you know, rather than focusing on, oh, so-and-so is not good at X. So now what we're going to do is spend most of our time doing X with them, which is not, doesn't make any sense, you know? Um, so, so how do we do that? And I would say, I am worried about it. I, I 100% support it. I think it's long past the time. And I just really am worried that I don't think many systems uh, are adequately prepared uh, to implement this in a way that's going to be successful because it involves a lot of training uh, of staff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your, your thoughts on that. Um, sadly, I could talk to you for like another hour. <laughs> I, I have so many questions. I just, I, um, I'm really appreciative of, of you taking the time. Um, I'm just going to wrap up at the very end. Um, we do something called the fast five. So I ask you a quick question and you just blurt out the answer. Oh no, Brene Brown style. And I'm not ready. <laughs> so no thinking. So going back to Debbie Donsky uh, and she says, read an effing book. And I love that. So what uh, is a book that you would suggest we read? Is this for staff or students? Does he staff. does depend? Sorry, for, staff. Oh, for staff. I think that everyone should read Decolonizing Education, that that should be mandatory reading in Faculties of Education by Marie Batiste. Uh, what is something that you are proud of? Oh, my son. My son, having having gotten him to, to 20 and the fact that he still likes to go for walks with his mom. Oh, uh, who's somebody you would suggest that we follow um, on Twitter or Instagram or... Oh, uh, two of them would be uh, Debbie Donsky and then Drawn to Intellect, which is Ms. Uh, Melissa Wilson. Um, can you teach us a word in Anishinaabe Moen? Oh, I don't speak the language. No, okay. you know, no, I, no. I, you know I, I wish I, I wish I did. Um, I've been, you know, I, I sing songs that I don't really know what they, what they are. Uh, the only thing I could say is um, I could say that the, the word part, that's part of my name is... Um, is Boajigan, which I under, you know, depending on who's translating it, um, says that it's either like a dream or a vision. And so that's, that's part of, part of my name. Oh, beautiful. And last question, what is something that you are grateful for today? Um, I'm grateful for having a student in this space with us today because that's really important for me. And I'm so grateful that in Southern Ontario, it is 17 degrees and sunny right now. And what I'm doing is looking longingly out the window that's right over there. Thank you, Chimiigwech, for, for taking the time to be with us today. Miigwech, miigwech, thank you. I hope that you enjoyed learning from Kalinda with me. You can follow her on Twitter and find links to her Anti-Racist Educator Reads podcast. On Vimeo, you can see the video that she referenced from Dr. Bettina Love. Just search Ally versus Co-Conspirator. Thank you to Patrick and Caitlin for joining me in such an important conversation. Until next time, fist down, word up. Truth be key to freedom and bondage.